Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 26 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on the Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming speakers can be found online at eWestminster.org. It's now my pleasure to introduce the second speaker in our spring series. Bill George is an internationally recognized business executive who has studied, taught, and lived effective leadership. As chairman and CEO of Medtronic, he led that company's growth in market capitalization from $1.1 billion to $60 billion. Before joining Medtronic, he served as a senior executive with Honeywell and Lytton Industries. He is currently a director of Goldman Sachs, Novartis, ExxonMobil, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the World Economic Forum USA. Since retiring from Medtronic in 2002, Mr. George has committed himself to developing future generations of leaders. He serves as professor of management practice and the Henry B. Arthur Fellow of Ethics at the Harvard Business School. He is the author of two books on leadership development, the first, Authentic Leadership, Rediscovering the Secrets to Creating Lasting Value, was published in 2003, and his follow-up book, True North, Discover Your Authentic Leadership, was released this week. Mr. George notes in his new book that an enormous vacuum in leadership exists today, a vacuum that results not from a shortage of people with the capacity for leadership, but from a wrong-headed notion of what constitutes a leader. With author, co-author Peter Sims, he culls the wisdom and tells the stories of 125 outstanding leaders who demonstrate that character, values, and an attitude of service are among the fundamental characteristics of effective leadership. True North has been described as different from the typical how-to-get-ahead business book for its focus on integrity and on authenticity as essential keys to forming great leaders and thereby filling the leadership vacuum in an increasingly complex world. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Bill George. Thank you, and welcome to all of you. Thank you for coming today. It's really a privilege for me to be back at the Westminster Town Hall Forum, an institution for which I have so much respect, to address the challenging subject of leadership in the 21st century. Four years ago, I spoke in this same place in the aftermath of the fall of Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco. My subject that day was crisis of corporate ethics. Uh, where have all the leaders gone? That was a precursor to my first book, Authentic Leadership, which challenged the new generation of leaders to lead more authentically than the previous generation. Since that time, as you just heard, I've been teaching leadership and leadership development at Harvard Business School and studying how leaders develop uh, and hopefully to try to have some influence, small influence, on the next generation of leaders so we can avoid the ethical collapses 
we've seen in recent years. The result is my new book, True North, Discover Your Authentic Leadership, which is being launched nationwide today. America, in my opinion, faces a major crisis in leadership that spans the fields of politics, government, religion, education, and particularly business, and even nonprofits. Confidence in our leaders has fallen to an all-time low. A recent uh, poll by the Gallup survey showed that only 22% of American people trust our business leaders. That's not just a cause for concern. That's a formula for disaster if we don't correct it. In part, the problem comes from a wrong-headed notion of what does constitute a leader. We have this obsession with leaders at the top. And in far too many cases, we've chosen the wrong leaders. We've chosen them for their power, their charisma, their style, their image, rather than choosing them for their character, their substance, and their integrity. These leaders have often violated the very power they've been given. As President Abraham Lincoln once said, if you want to test a person, find out, give him unlimited power, and watch how he uses it. And we've seen many leaders have that power and abuse it to serve themselves instead of their calling to serve others. Our entire system of capitalism is based on trust. Trust that our institutions that serve us will do the best by us. And through our legal system, society has granted corporations enormous freedom and power to make money for their investors, but at the same time to serve their constituencies and the best interests of society as a whole. When our business leaders violate that trust, we risk losing the privileges that capitalism conveys and destroying the very system that has made the American economy the most vibrant and enduring in the history of the world. Witness the 2003 Sarbanes-Oxley Act hastily passed by Congress in 31 days in response to the public outcry over the problems at Enron and other companies. Violating the public trust risks losing the privileges of capitalism. For business leaders, trust is the fuel that makes the system work. If our customers don't trust us, why should they buy our products? A physician implanting a Medtronic defibrillator depends upon Medtronic to make that product a quality product. Just as when you buy a television set, a computer, or an automobile, you trust the manufacturer to produce a quality product. Employees trust their employers to provide them long-term employment, health care benefits, and a sound retirement. Just as investors trust corporate leaders to give them a fair return on their investment. And the public trusts corporations to act in the public interest. So when leaders violate the interests of those four constituencies, not only do they risk the lives and livelihood of their customers, their employees, and their investors, but they put at risk the entire system of capitalism. Our Harvard study of how authentic leaders developed is the largest in-depth study ever undertaken about how business leaders develop. We interviewed long, in-depth interviews with 125 leaders who provided us with deep insights into how they developed what was important in their development, and also uh, they were remarkably open about the struggles they had faced, their personal failures, their triumphs, and their disappointments. They're a very diverse group of people that spans a full range of socioeconomic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds, 
28% of them are females, 8% are racial minorities, 12% are international citizens. About half of them are CEOs, but the other half make up a wide array of young leaders, uh, mid-career leaders, uh, nonprofit leaders. They ranged in age from 23 to 93, and we ensure we have at least 15 per decade. Uh, it's interesting, in the past 50 years, uh, leadership scholars have conducted over 1,000 studies trying to correlate the, the characteristics of the ideal business leader, their traits, their personality styles, their characteristics with success. And none of these studies has yet to produce the ideal profile, the ideal leader. Uh, thank goodness, because if they had produced a cookie-cutty leadership style, all of us would be trying to follow that cookie-cutter style. Uh, that alone would make us into personas. Kevin Scher, who is currently CEO of Amgen, the nation's leading biotech company, saw the downside of GE's call to personality when he was working in the mid-80s for Jack Welch as his assistant. As he said, everyone wanted to be like Jack, but leadership has many voices. You need to be who you are, not to try to emulate someone else. The reality is that no one can be an authentic leader by trying to emulate someone else. There's no doubt we can learn from excellent leaders, we can learn from their experiences, but there's no way you can be successful trying to be like them. People trust you when you're authentic, not an imitation. As Retha Clark King, formerly of General Mills, told me, if you're aiming to be like someone else, you're just being a copycat because you think that's what people want you to be. You'll never be a star with that kind of thinking, but you might be a star, unreplicatable, if you will follow your own passions. I think after completing the study, we now feel we understand why previous studies have been unsuccessful. Leaders are highly complex individuals who have distinctive qualities that cannot be sufficiently described by a list of their traits and their characteristics. In reading the uh, transcripts, some 3,000 pages from these interviews, we were startled to find that these leaders did not identify any traits that made them successful. Instead, they believed that the important thing for them was their life story, the history from which they've come and the struggles they had. By constantly testing themselves through real world experiences and by reframing their life stories to try to understand them at a deeper level, they unleashed their passions and found the purpose of their leadership. I vividly recall my interview with Dick Kovacevich, the chairman of Wells Fargo, who arguably is the most successful commercial banker in the United States over the past 20 years. When I asked Dick, what made him successful, what made his bank so successful. He went back to his hometown in western Washington, a sawmill town where no one had ever gone to college. And he talked about the importance of the teachers. He talked about the importance of what he'd learned on the athletic field. He said, I learned far more working in the corner grocery store every day from age 11 to 18 and playing sports than I ever did in business school. Dick described how he used to be on the athletic field from 2.30 to 5.30 every single day. He'd go home, get a sandwich, and go work from six to nine. And he, he showed how that shaped his leadership and the kind of bank he wanted to create. His story is just one of hundreds we heard from our interviewees. These cover the full gamut of life's experiences. One of the most powerful came from Starbucks funder, uh, founder Howard Schultz. And Schultz described how at age seven he came home and found his father had lost his job because he was in a cast for having slipped on the ice and he lost his health care benefits and his mother was pregnant, couldn't go to work and the family had no money and he at seven years old had to fend off the bill collectors. He saw his father lose 30 jobs during his lifetime and he said, you know, my vision is to create a company complete with health care benefits for every 
employee that my father would be proud to work at. And that's why Starbucks became the first American company in 1986 to offer health care benefits to every employee, including part-time workers. Andrea Jung, who is the CEO of Avon Products, was a rising star at Neiman Marcus as executive vice president in the early 30s. She quit without another job because she said, you know, I don't want to devote my life to just producing goods, luxury goods, for the upper one-tenth of one percent of American women. Uh, sometime later, she joined Avon Products, was passed over for CEO, later became CEO, and said, we're changing the mission. This company's not about cosmetics, it's about the empowerment of women. And she increased the number of sales representatives from 1.5 to 5.5 million, many of them in the developing world, carrying out her passion for empowering women in countries like Brazil and China and throughout the world. And she and Schultz have made ent remained entirely true to their life stories in order to fulfill their personal missions, and in so doing have enhanced the lives of tens of millions of people. One of the things we learned is that most of the leaders have been profoundly influenced and shaped by transformative experiences, or what we call crucibles in their lives. These traumatic experiences allowed them to realize that leadership was not about their success or gratification, but rather about serving other people and empowering other people to step up and lead. In my experience, you can separate all leaders, and this may be oversimplified, into two categories. Those that are out to serve themselves and realize your job is to make me great, and those that are out to serve all of you. And that really is the dividing line between authentic leaders and other leaders. And although many inauthentic leaders disguise their intentions these days with we language, under pressure, you often find out that they're really in there to serve themselves. One of our most moving stories came from Novartis chairman and CEO Dan Vassella, whose early life traumas of spending a year in a sanatorium at age eight, seeing the death of his father and his sister at age 11 and 12, uh, motivated him to become a compassionate physician who could lead a global healthcare company that could change and impact the lives of millions of people every year. Oprah Winfrey talked openly about her experience of being sexually abused starting at 11 years old. She reframed her experiences not just to be a television celebrity, but a caring leader whose mission it is to enable and empower people to take responsibility for their lives and not feel like victims. And she was able to overcome feelings of victimhood and then translate that to the lives of millions of others. In my personal case, it took a series of crucibles uh, before I learned that my mission was not to be CEO of a great global company, but to build an organization that could help others through life-saving products. In my teenage years, I was trying so hard to be a leader that I lost seven elections in a row. <laughs> Obviously, I was not a leader, but uh, thanks to a caring group in my college fraternity, I learned that my ambitions and my selfish behavior trying to get ahead was blocking my ability to use my leadership gifts because no one wanted to follow me. It's hard to be a leader if no one's interested in working with you. That was easy to understand. It was much more difficult to change my behavior and to realize that I was, had to evolve into a leader that cared about other people. In my mid-20s, the back-to-back -back deaths of my mother and my fiance 18 months later brought me to the depths of loneliness that caused me to explore deeply what life is all about and to get in touch with my own mission in life. But it really wasn't until I hit the wall in my career in my mid-40s at Honeywell that I finally recognized the deeper purpose of my leadership, that it was not about 
being CEO. And I was focusing too much on that, but rather to join a unique company like Medtronic, whose mission was to restore people to full life and health. Had it not been for the council, my wife Penny and my close friend Doug Baker, my men's group and my couples groups, many of whom are here today, I might never have come to that realization. We all need support in our lives. Over the past decade, I've learned from my wife's experience with breast cancer in the 1996, the power of a leader who leads from behind and inspires others to lead. Penny never saw herself as a leader. In fact, she was never encouraged to become one. But through her healing for breast cancer, she found her passion to change medicine, to become more patient-oriented, to look at the whole person, mind, body, heart, and spirit. And Penny became stepped up to lead that movement, both locally and nationally because she's so passionate about her cause. All of these very human stories lead to the unmistakable conclusion that we need a new kind of leader to lead our institutions in the 21st century, a leader who can empower others to step up and lead. The 20th century vision of the leader who commands the troops to follow him over the hill and build his glory is dead, or at least I think it should be. Coming out of two world wars in the 1950s, we idolized all powerful leaders like General George Patton, regardless of their uh, evident flaws and abusive tendencies. We dichotomized leaders from workers, with the latter being nothing but the cogs in the wheels of production. I remember as a 19-year-old industrial engineering student taking a, time, uh, a stopwatch out and timing the motions of machine tool workers and then advising them instead of listening to them about how we could make their work more meaningful and they could become more effective. That was the nature of the assembly line in those days. In the last two decades of the 20th century, we idolized the charismatic leader, the all-powerful charismatic leader at the top. I think it's high time that we cast off these images of all-powerful leaders who dominate their subordinates with power, intimidation, and a directive style. We don't need leaders who treat people as a cost of doing business rather than the reason for the business's success. No longer can we tolerate leaders who destroy businesses while walking away with millions of dollars in compensation for themselves. Employees, customers, investors, and the public at large have every reason not to trust these vestiges of failed 20th century leadership. Leadership in this new century must change precisely because the nature of people and organizations has changed. People today are more knowledgeable about their jobs than their bosses are. They are demanding meaning and significance from their work, and they're not willing to toil away on the trenches for someone else's benefit. They want to lead now. They don't want to wait in line for 10 to 20 years until they're tapped for a leadership role. And why shouldn't every one of us expect and demand this level of respect and meaning? Why shouldn't you? You can discover your authentic leadership right now. You don't have to be born as a leader or with certain characteristics and traits of a leader. You don't have to wait for a tap on the shoulder. You can step up to lead at any point in time in your life. You're never too young or too old. As author Stephen Covey has said, leadership is your choice, not your title. So I'd like to offer a new definition of successful 21st century leaders. They are authentic leaders who bring people together around a shared mission and values and empower them to lead in order to serve their customers while creating value for all their constituencies. Well, from reading the press these days, one gets the impression that leaders are nothing more than greedy people out to feather their own nests. For all the pu negative publicity that a few 
greedy leaders do generate, I'm pleased to say that the new generation, that these are the exceptions, not the rule, because there's a whole new cadre of leaders that have stepped up in the wake of what I call the post-Enron era, in the wake of the fall of Enron, uh, to lead our corporations in a much more authentic way. Locally, we're blessed with outstanding leaders like Marilyn Nelson of Carlson Companies, Brad Anderson of Best Buy, Bob Ulrich at Target, Doug Baker Jr. of Ecolab, Steve Rothschild at Twin Cities Rise, and my successor at Medtronic Art Collins. Nationally as well, a new generation is stepping up to lead our corporation in an entirely different manner, and they talk openly how they're leading differently than their successors, about going with the flow of society and not working against the interests of society. These leaders recognize the value of bringing people together, and they know they have to empower people to lead their companies at all levels. Standouts among this group include Jeff Immelt of IBM, Ann Mulcahy of Xerox, Sam Pomisano, excuse me, Jeff Immelt of GE, Sam Pomisano of IBM, Ann Mulcahy, A.G. Laffley of Procter & Gamble, and Andrea Jung, as well as nonprofit leaders like young Wendy Kopp, who founded Teach for America at age 21, or Nancy Berry of Women's World Bank, the microfinance organization. These leaders of major organizations are setting a new standard, enabling people, young and old alike, to take on important leadership roles. Well, let me make this prediction for you. Organizations that are successful in the 21st century will let those that know how to motivate their people with an inspiring mission and empower them at all levels of their organization. That's why organizations like Target, Procter & Gamble, Best Buy, Johnson & Johnson, and Wells Fargo are decade after decade able to sustain their success. On the other side, the lack of inspired leadership is the reason that companies like Sears and General Motors and Ford and Home Depot are really struggling these days. Well, I wrote True North to answer the question, how do you become an authentic leader? The answer is it takes years of hard work and personal development. The key to knowing, the key is knowing the true north of your internal compass and preparing yourself to stay on that course in spite of the challenges and seductions that you'll face that cause so many leaders to go astray. Your true north represents who you are as a human being at your deepest level. It's your fixed point in a spinning world. True North is based on your most cherished values, your principles you live by, your passions, and your motivations. And when you follow it, your leadership will be authentic, and people naturally want to follow you and associate with you. Discovering your True North takes a lifetime of commitment and learning. Each day as you're tested in the real world, you yearn to look at the person you see in the mirror and respect the life you've chosen to lead. As long as you're true to who you are, I have found that you can cope with the most difficult circumstances that life presents, because life is not always fair. But in reality, other people may have very different expectations for you and your leadership than you have for yourself. You'll be pressured by external forces to respond to their needs, seduced by rewards for fulfilling them. But you know, when you get too far off course, your internal compass tells you something is wrong here. And that's the time to reorient yourself. But that requires strength of character. It requires resolve. And it requires courage, all matters of the heart, to resist these pressures and take corrective action when necessary. CEO of Sarah Lee, Brenda Barnes, told us the most important thing about leadership is your character and the values that guide your life. 
You know, everything in business is not black and white. There's a lot of gray areas. But if you let your values guide your actions and don't ever lose sight of your internal compass, you're going to be just fine. But when you're aligned with your true north, there is a coherence between your life story and your leadership. As psychologist William James said, wrote a century ago, the best way to define a person's character is to seek out the time when he felt himself most intensely active and alive, when he can hear his inner voice saying, this is the real me. Have you experienced a time in thinking back over your life when you can say, this is the real me? Personally, I felt it the first day I walked into Medtronic in 1989 and felt I'm part of an organization where I can truly be myself and be appreciated for who I am. Well, becoming an authentic leader is a long journey that takes hard work on your part, just as it takes a lot of hard work to become a virtuoso violin player and go to Carnegie Hall or to become a championship athlete. As GE's Jeff Immelt told us, leadership is one of those great journeys into your own soul. It's not like someone else can tell you how to do it. In studying leaders who have failed, I realized that their failure resulted from their inability to lead themselves. In fact, the hardest person you'll ever have to lead is yourself. When you can lead yourself through all those challenges, seductions, and difficulties, you'll find that leading others is a lot easier and relatively straightforward. So there's, our leaders told us there are six principal areas required to lead yourself. Gaining self-awareness, practicing your values and your principles under pressure, balancing your extrinsic and intrinsic motivations, building a support team around you, integrating your life, enabling yourself to stay grounded, and understanding the, your passions and the purpose of your leadership. So let me comment on each of those. First of all, self-awareness. It may take a lifetime to gain complete awareness yourself, but your self-knowledge can be accelerated by honest feedback from others. In his mid-30s, Doug Baker Jr. was a rising star at Ecolab who had just taken over the company's newly acquired subsidiary in North Carolina. Through his early success, Baker told me that he'd become self-centered uh, uh, self and arrogant. Then he got some feedback from his subordinates that told him all of this and worse. He called getting the unexpected criticism a cathartic experience. As he explained, it was as if somebody flashed a mirror in my face and I saw myself at my absolute worst. It was horrifying. But you know, I went around and talked to all the members of my team, explained what I'd learned from the feedback, and asked them for their help. Baker's self-awareness was a critical factor that in enabling him to become CEO of Ecolab nine years later and being so successful today. In terms of your values, anyone can say they have good values. The key is not saying what your values are. It's what you do, and particularly what you do under pressure. That's when you're going to find out what your real values are. Today, John Huntsman is a successful leader and founder of Huntsman Chemical, a multi-billion dollar corporation based in Salt Lake, a bishop in the Mormon Church, and a leader of a 73-person family. But back in 1973, he was a young staffer working in the White House uh, under Richard Nixon's notoriously powerful chief of staff, Bob Haldeman. One day, Haldeman called him into his office and he directed him to place some illegal immigrant workers in a congressman's partially owned plant to embarrass the congressman who had been opposing Nixon's initiative. At first, Huntsman went along with the game and he called the plant manager to give him instructions about how to do this. Uh, 
As Huntsman says, there are times when we act too quickly and we don't take stock of what is right and wrong. This is one of those times when I didn't think it through. After 15 minutes, my inner moral compass kicked in. And I said to my plant manager, forget that I ever called. I don't want to play this game. He said, going back to tell Haldeman that I was disobeying his orders uh, was very hard to do because he knew he would be viewed as disloyal and his White House career was over. So be it, he said. I left in six months. Not surprisingly, all of us who are leaders, all of us are human beings, like promotions, pay increases. We like the recognition from our peers, even from the media. But if these motivations dominate our passions, we are at risk of derailing sooner or later. Authentic leaders, in my view, recognize their intrinsic motivations, like helping others, making a difference in the world, and building great organizations with purpose and meaning. The important thing is not to deny that we have extrinsic motivation, but to create some kind of balance with our well-intended intrinsic motivation. I'd like to use the example of Kevin Shear again, who at age 41 was a rising star at GE on Jack Welch's high potential list. But when a search firm came after him uh, to find a faster route to the top at MCI, he jumped at the opportunity, leaving Welch burned that he had uh, taken off. Once at MCI, however, he learned that the COO was in line for the CEO's job and didn't welcome this new hotshot from GE. It didn't help that he went in in the first three weeks and tried to reorganize the entire company when he didn't know the business. Uh, he had a very difficult crucible, and he felt very lonely and despairing. It felt like he was in the wrong place, but he felt he had to stick it out for at least two years. But you know, caught up in the glamour he finally got in touch with his own arrogance, and he said, arrogance has a price. And so when the opportunity came across his desk to be president of Amgen, he decided to, uh, to recognize it was more important to be involved in an organization that had a mission he could align with. He earnestly studied biology, the biotech business, before seven years before becoming CEO, and was much more patient. By then, he was able to balance his extrinsic motivations with his intrinsic motivations that the Amgen mission provided him. I think an essential element for all of us is staying on course of our true north is building a support team around us. I think your team starts with having just one, at least one person in your life with, which you can be with whom you can be totally honest and transparent. That could be your spouse, it could be your best friend, it could be a mentor or a therapist. That person for me is my wife Penny, who's been largely responsible for whatever success I've been able to enjoy. She keeps me on track, particularly when I get too impressed with myself or caught up in my own personal desires. I think your family, your friends, and your mentor or mentors can also help you stay grounded, especially when you most need their help. And I believe in having a support group of peers with whom you can share openly and who you know will be there for you when you need them. I've been blessed to have a men's group with whom I've been meeting for over 30 years every Wednesday morning from 7.15 to 8.30. And it's been invaluable to have someone I could talk to about the fears I have my wife's breast cancer or am I happy or unhappy at Honeywell or the struggles I'm having. Uh, but you know, you can't build your support team when you get in a crisis because it's those shared life histories. It's that trust that you build up that you need to be building years in advance and so I think it's really important that we all start to build our support teams now. 
You know, every leader, particularly young leaders these days with two career families, is facing the challenges of integrating their lives, their work lives, with their personal lives, their family life, and trying to find enough time for everything, particularly when the workplace is taking up more of people's time than it ever did. The question is, how do you stay grounded with all those pressures coming at you? How can you be the same person at work and at home, in your community, and in your personal life? I think it requires maintaining your integrity and being that, the same person in all environments, and not letting your work commitments pull you away from the fullness of life. This isn't easy, but it can be done by making clear choices and setting boundaries and not selling your soul to the job. If you don't do these things, you may become a shooting star who burns out long before you have the opportunity to fulfill your dreams. Finally, when you understand your passions that emanate from your life story, you discover the purpose of your leadership. In other words, your true north becomes clear. Let's look at how Alan Breyer, CEO of Hazelden, the nation's leading chemical dependency organization, discovered her purpose. In her college year, she was a student activist leading voter registration drives and civil rights marches and actually had her student loans pulled by the Nixon administration because she was considered a subversive, although she had never violated the law. 30 years, she followed her husband and worked in business while she raised her family. But after her youngest son went to college, she decided, I want to do something different. And when the opportunity to become CEO of Hazelton, she stepped up from the board to that role and has now been able to reconnect with and rekindle those passions of her youth. Well, developing all these qualities of the authentic leader is a hard job. It takes a lot of hard work. But as you do, you'll find that leading others becomes relatively straightforward. And you can empower them. Let's look at how Marilyn Nelson of the Carlson Companies saw that she had to change the company when she took over from her father and transform it for the 21st century. She decided to reinvent Carlson as a company that cared for its customers because it had a caring environment for its employees. And she went on a personal crusade all around the world to bring that message to her employees. In doing so, she carried with her the memories of her, tra her daughter's tragic death in an automobile accident uh, back in the mid-1980s as she vowed to, quote, give back and make life better for people. Well, when we examine organizations that are led by authentic leaders, we recognize there's no shortage of leaders. In every organization, there are people just waiting to step up and lead uh, if they just have the opportunity. My advice to you is don't wait to be asked. You can step up and lead right now. What are you waiting for? What are the fears that cause you not to lead? Ask yourself these two simple questions. If not me, then who? If not now, when? You're capable of leading, and the experience is worth any risks you take or any criticism you may endure. As President Theodore Roosevelt said in 1908, it is not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who strives valiantly and spends himself in a worthy cause, who knows at the best, the triumph of high achievement. And if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place will never be known with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Are you prepared to enter that arena? Are you prepared to dare greatly? Are you prepared to spend yourself on a worthy cause? Because if you are, you'll know the triumph of high achievement and you'll experience the fulfillment of leadership. You'll know the joy of working with a passionate group of people toward a, a shared goal of confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles. 
and leaving a legacy to the world through your leadership. There is nothing that can compare to the sense of fulfillment. You will have the satisfaction of knowing that you followed your true north, you discovered your authentic leadership, and the world is a better place because of you. You will have become a true north leader. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill George. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church and moderator of today's forum. Our speaker today is business leader and author Bill George. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank our many supporters, including the Baker Foundation, for making today's forum possible. We invite you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum on Thursday, March 29th, when environmentalist and writer William McKibben joins us for his presentation, A Durable Future, Local Enterprise and the Environment. More information on our spring series is available online at eWestminster.org. Mr. George, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. And we begin with one I suspect you receive a lot these days as you speak about leadership. How do the principles of leadership that you've enumerated and that you've developed in your studies apply to political leaders? I wish I knew. As John White had said when he came to my class at Harvard Business School, he said, you know, we think we could get better people to step up to political leadership. Uh, I don't know if they do, because I think our expectations of political leadership is to project some kind of image of perfection, and we pick away at them. And so I think it's really hard to be authentic in a political environment. That's why I didn't choose that field. But I wish we could have people who were truly authentic in the political realm, who felt they could truly be themselves and endure the criticism and not have to position themselves on that side of the aisle or this side of the aisle or satisfy every single constituency that could call it like it is. But uh, I continue to be concerned about that, but I claim no expertise. Another question on political leadership. Without being partisan or naming names, unless you so desire, can you describe the authentic leadership characteristics of a presidential candidate? If you followed my advice, I'm quite sure you wouldn't get elected, because I'd like someone to tell us their vision for the country and what we really need to do even though it's going to involve pain for us and difficulties. And I'd like a president who challenged us to step up and lead and make our contributions to America. Question about boards of directors and businesses. With so many inadequate and overpaid leaders, is it not the board of directors who are responsible or who is responsible? Absolutely. Boards of directors, and I've served on a number of boards of fine companies, but I think taken as a whole, in many, many cases, our boards have failed us. They've been asleep at the switch, they have delegated too much to management, and they have not fulfilled their responsibilities. And I'll go one step further. I think when a board of directors has to go outside the corporation to find its leaders, that's a sign of failure. I served on the target board for 12 years. I'm quite sure they'll find a successor, Bob Ulrich, internally, but if they can't, that's not a sign of success, hiring some charismatic leader who doesn't know the business 
is not the sign of a good board. And I think boards of directors need to give primary attention to selecting leaders, to evaluating their leaders, and then to build succession in, not just at the top, but at all levels. And if they do that, the results will follow. Another business-related question regarding the actions of boards. What do you think the salary ratio should be between a CEO and the lowest paid employee? Do you think that there should be a ratio used in setting those salaries? Well, I'm, I'm not a believer in legislating these things, but I do think it's totally gotten totally out of line. I think it, it escalated in the late 90s and it has not stopped. And uh, I think this is a cause for concern. I think the reason was we thought there was a free market for CEOs and to get paid against each other. And it's the Lake Wobegon effect that every CEO is above average. And by definition, the structures just keep moving up. But in reality, boards should be looking at the relationship between their top executive, the next tier of executives, middle managers, and people, the lowest paid people in the company, and keeping a compression level there as we tried very hard to do at Medtronic for many, many years. Remembering that we were once told that what's good for General Motors is good for the country, uh, this question asks, I'm thankful for your being on the ExxonMobil board. Can we truly be sure that big business is doing what's right for our country and for our world? Ah. Good question. I, uh, I've been on that board uh, a little less than two years now, and it's an extremely well-run company. It has a, a lot of power in the world, and I think is recognizing its responsibilities in the world, but certainly no company can, uh, can take on all of these issues. But I think companies can come together with governments around the world and try to solve major problems of energy, the environment, which also get into the geopolitical area, and there's no way today you can separate these things because they're so inextricably linked. Exxon had to, had to leave Venezuela because they weren't going to enforce uh, contracts there, and these difficulties face them as well as uh, the whole global environmental situation. Follow-up question to that in terms of globalism. To what degree do you believe our corporations, American corporations, are exploiting the third world rather than serving their needs? Tough question. Uh, all corporations today have to think globally. Target has no stores outside of North America, and yet they have 4,000 employees in Hong Kong that are sourcing there. If they didn't do that, they wouldn't be competitive with Walmart. So you have to think in a global environment. But I think we have to build upon our comparative strengths. In this country, creativity, innovation, service, are not, if not unique American strengths, they certainly are a competitive advantage. And we need to build on those strengths. In terms of co workers working around the world, I think it's great when corporations like Avon provide opportunities for people to reach economic self-sufficiency in their home country. And I think they should be focused on doing that. Or Starbucks agrees to have a fair trade policy in purchasing its coffee. So they're not exploiting those workers. They're providing them the opportunity for a fair income. Of course, that income is going to be different because the cost of living is different in those countries. But it still has to be the opportunity for them to receive a fair compensation for their work and where they can have economic self-sufficiency within their countries. You're a teacher at uh, Harvard University, which has just hired its first female president. And some of your studying of leadership includes, of course, a look at women as leaders. What, if any, difference will Harvard having a president that's a woman make in the leadership of its faculty and the way you perhaps teach in your classroom? 
Well, first of all, I think it's great that Drew Faust is a woman. If you look at many of our leading American universities now are headed up by women. I'm on a board with Sherry Thielman at, uh, at Princeton and Ruth Simmons at Brown and many, many institutions. Mary Sue Coleman at Michigan and Susan Hockfield at MIT. So this is becoming more of the norm than it is becoming the exception. But I'm quite sure that Drew Faust was not chosen because she's a woman, but because she's a person who has emotional intelligence to go with her intellectual intelligence and knows how to move faculty forward and not constantly be in opposition to them as her predecessor was. So uh, uh, in that sense, I, I think it's a breath, she's a breath of fresh air on the Harvard campus. Follow-up uh, related to Harvard and your experience at Harvard Business School, have you found that leadership skills are still considered soft and secondary to the hard skills of management, finance, operations, sales, legal, et cetera? Now you're going to get me angry because this is one of the most misguided notion that somehow the financial skills are the hard skills and the leadership skills are soft skills. Let me tell you, it's not hard to make a decision if you don't have any feelings to reduce 10,000 employees. It's not hard to make the quarterly numbers. The numbers are the numbers. That's the easy part. The hard part is building a great organization and leading people and keeping on course yourself when you're trying to do that and dealing with human problems and figuring out the empathy, having the empathy for the people you work with, having the compassion for your customers, having the sense of courage. All those are questions of the heart that some consider soft. I don't consider them soft at all. I consider it essential to leaders, and I think leaders who lead only with their head and try to overpower people with their intellect are not going to be successful with leaders in this century. How is the concept of fair share met concerning the needs of employees, the needs of shareholders, the needs of the community, while still protecting the corporation itself? Are American businesses genuinely struggling with these issues? They are. And uh, one of the wonderful things, legacies that Earl Bakken left Medtronic back in 1962 when the company was virtually bankrupt and he wrote a mission statement for what he wanted the company to be at the request of his board. And one of the things he put in there is that all employees shall have a means to share in the company's success. And if we who are in positions of power in corporation can take this forward so that everyone who works there has a means to share in the company's success, not just a salary, but as the company goes up, you reap more of the rewards. Uh, they often talk about the Microsoft millionaires, and I know Medtronic employees did very, very well with Medtronic stock because they shared in the company's success. And I think corporate leaders need to think about that. That's, if you want to have a shareholder-based company, stop thinking about investor uh, shareholder services, ISS, and start thinking about making all your employees shareholders and letting them benefit. And then you'll see that everything is in sync. You know, the customer's interest, the employee's interest, and the shareholder's interest. And that's the key to me to running a sustainable, enduring company. It seems that the American public has tolerated and even failed to hold accountable leaders with low standards for integrity and character. Are we disheartened as a nation? Have we lost our moral or north, true north direction, our moral compass? Have we lowered our standards? I think we've been asleep at the switch. I'm not sure we've lowered our standards. Our standards may be very high, but we haven't been vigilant in enforcing those standards because we've chosen people for the wrong reasons. If you choose somebody for their charisma, why do you think you're going to get someone of character? If you choose them for their image and you don't test out their integrity, why do you assume? And if you just hire someone off the street who comes in with a great image that impresses Wall Street and you have a 
couple one-hour interviews and a dinner and you hire them, you have no idea if they're going to be really people of integrity and if your people are going to be responding to them. And that's why we make so many mistakes. And that's why the great leaders, I think, are tested, if you will, before they get to the top. They've worked in the organization. People know how they'll respond under pressure. One of our leaders said, show me a leader who had been tested under pressure and I won't trust him. Let's, let's see how people do. That's how we get people with integrity. And I think that's what board of directors need to do starting right now. We started with the politicians. We're going now to the clergy. Uh-oh. <laughs> now I'm in trouble. In, in fairness, uh, do you think the principles of true north leadership translate to the world of church leadership? If so, how? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I, without the risk of uh, giving a religious talk here, I think you can very definitely uh, your, your belief structures come to, do you carry that out in church leadership? And, if not, and religious leaders are under tremendous pressure to do that. But I think, as we were talking before this talk, you should not set your church leaders up as godlike figures. They're just human beings like any of the rest of us. They're not infallible. And we shouldn't expect that from our church leaders. We, but we should allow them to uh, stay true to their, if you will, their moral compass and guide us in that regard. That was helpful, thank you. <laughs> Follow-up question about spiritual values. What role do spiritual values or a person's religious commitments play in developing authentic leadership? Well, I won't say this authentic leadership in any way exclusive to people who have a set of uh, religious convictions or affiliations, uh, but I do think we're all forced in our lifetime to confront the existential questions of life, whether we're Christians or Jews or Muslims or Buddhists or agnostics or even atheists, we still have to confront these questions. And those at their heart are spiritual questions. And I think we connect through our sense of spirit, even if we're people of totally different faiths, that's a way we connect because it gets down to what we believe. And I think it's really important that we carry out what we believe, not just in the, in the sanctuary, but in the world of work as well. There are exceptions, this questioner asks, but the work ethics of so many of our younger generations seem sorely lacking. This person presents no evidence for that, but asks the question, uh, how can teachers and other leaders inspire young people to feel their own potential, their own responsibility, and the pleasure of leadership? Well, I think you get to a fundamental problem in the education field, and it's not my field, but I'll offer you my opinion, and that is that we need to honor our teachers more. We need to compensate them as more valuable citizens in our society. They have some of the toughest jobs in our society. Thank you. And, you know, the, the, if you will, if the, the needs of families today, often where children come from uh, not unified homes and sometimes no homes at all, puts more of the burden on, on teachers. And we need to stop burdening them with so many administrative details. But we need to give teachers the right kind of opportunity to, if you will, work with the, our children and we need to compensate them and recognize how important that role is in overall society. That's a great answer to end on. Thank you, Bill George. Thank you.
And to all of you here in the in-house audience, we invite you to gather for the buffet lunch now in the Meisel Room at the other end of the building or join the small group discussion in the Bates Room to your left with facilitators from the Minnesota International Center Greats Decision Program. Lunch is provided in that room as well. Copies of Bill George's book and Mr. George himself available for signing the other end of the building. And thank you for coming today. We'll see you next on Thursday, March 29th for the Town Hall Forum with Bill McKibben. Thank you.